Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It is fantastic to be back again. Our guest this week, a regular on Devils and Details now, uh, back on the show, one of the best inflation analysts in the country. It's Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Joe, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Look, we've got a packed agenda. Uh, we're going to take a deep dive on the inflation picture because suddenly the headline rate is kind of 2.1%, but there's some continuing underlying softness. Uh, and the price rises appear to be confined to specific areas. Uh, and I'm looking forward to um, getting uh, into the details of that with you. We're going to talk about the housing market um, just because um, it's there's so many developments every week now. Um, and it's all uh, hugely interesting. Uh, and we're also going to talk about some interesting trends in economics education, as well as the great work of the Women in Economics Network, uh, where Joanne is an active member and a great leader in that area. Um, but very quickly, Dave, uh, trade data, uh, it's Thursday, um, but the trade data this morning looked big, but maybe not. Oh, headline figure was great. The uh, trade surplus was the largest in 13 months and close to two bill. Uh, very uh, strong uh, commodity exports again, uh, but it's basically a, a price story. So uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to add as much to GDP, if at all, uh, when in we can get our reports. Correct. Yeah. So I uh, know like last last quarter, no, around about half of the entire GDP growth that was recorded during the quarter came entirely from exports. Uh, now we're not looking at anything near that, maybe 0.1%, maybe. Mm. Uh, so uh, not not to worry, we'll get uh, further details tomorrow. We'll let the uh, retail sales report, including turnover for the quarter, and that looks like it'll be fairly healthy. So uh, not looking all doom and gloom at this point in time. Uh, so trade is one part of the GDP equation, but the biggest and most important one is the consumer side. And Joanne, you're a, a real expert in this area. Um, so let's look at the consumer price inflation uh, data that we had. Um, headline figure back in the band, notionally, um, back in the 2 to 3% rate that the RBA likes to target. But underlying, um, you know, still not looking like there's really any uh, price heat uh, in the economy at the moment. Is that right? That's exactly right. So as you said, that headline now starting with a two, um, but the underlying data uh, is sitting below the band, which in itself isn't that concerning. But what we are seeing really is not much momentum behind it. Uh, and of course, the RBA governor, Phil Lowe, has talked about wanting evidence that the underlying inflation is making progress to the midpoint of the two to three percent band. And we're a long way from that. And actually, uh, not just the headline number was was a little bit soft, sort of still sitting uh, at 1.9%, and that was a slight deceleration. But the underlying data, when you when you pick up the sort of um, and look at the details underneath, it, it looked a little bit soft. Uh, so one of the most important things I think that was disappointing in the data was uh, what we economists call domestic market services inflation. So that's the prices that are not tradable, so not exposed to international competition. Uh, and they're the really part of inflation that we need to see accelerate to lift overall inflation, given that we're still seeing retail price deflation and competition. Um, and that measure actually decelerated in Q2. And I think that's quite disappointing. Joe, I was just going to ask, what is the biggest driver, in your opinion, behind that particular component in CPU? Because I've read a lot of things that it, a lot of it comes down to wages, uh, obviously the largest source of income for, for most households out there. Is that something that is definitely holding that area back from, uh, from a, that sustainable lift back towards the midpoint of the target? Look, absolutely. When we look at those types of businesses, uh, and, to, and to put it in context, when we talk about domestic market services inflation, what we're talking about are things like dry cleaning, um, vets, um, hairdressers. So those sort of services, uh, really, uh, that I said their prices are really set domestically. What we know about those businesses is that labour is their number one cost. 
in general. Um, so uh, if you're thinking about sort of cost push inflation, if you get a pickup in the wage bill for those firms, then it, traditionally they would pass that on to consumers and you'd see higher prices in that sector. Um, now we have actually seen wage growth stabilise on some measures, pick up on some measures. If you look at the wage price index, including bonuses, that's clearly accelerated. Um, and yet, despite that, we got this deceleration in that measure. And I think that's actually uh, really concerning. Now, one data doesn't make a piece of data doesn't make a trend, uh, but we'll be watching that really closely. So I think just what's fascinating is, you know, um, I actually have in front of me, uh, and I'll put it uh, in the post on the site, um, but um, uh, it's the tradable versus non-tradable uh, inflation chart. And it is... Uh, it really will get your pulse racing uh, because when you do tradables taking out the volatiles on tobacco, uh, that number to me looking at the chart uh, looks to be around minus 3%. Uh, so that is a really, you know, so the upward pressures um, are in non-tradable uh, inflation and then, you know, you see the CPI um, lifting there to about 2%. Um, but the big drag is on that tradable inflation. So that's the... Um, stuff that we bring into the country uh, or the stuff that moves and comes and goes from the country that can move out of the economy. Um, but um, uh, And those prices are, it seems to be, that a huge weight uh, on overall um, price pressures. Look, absolutely. So those tradable prices make up about a third uh, of the CPI basket. Um, they tend to be often retail prices. We know the retail sector is facing enormous disruption, a lot of uh, competition around prices. Uh, so just to pull out a few categories, um, clothing and footwear prices are down 2.1% over the last year. And that's actually been a multi-year uh, trend, if you like. Household appliances are down 1.6%. Similar falls for furniture, furnishings, and those type of things. So I guess what it means from a policy perspective, if you want inflation to be trending up towards the midpoint of your band, you need the other parts of inflation to be running really quite fast to offset that retail price deflation or tradable inflation, you know, in, in sort of putting it in the different words. But in my forecast out over the, the next sort of two and a half years, I don't have any uh, core tradable inflation in my numbers. So right. I think this retail price deflation trend has further to run. I think it's broadening out to a wider range of items. Um, and that's why that lift in that domestic market services inflation is so critical to seeing a trend uplift in inflation. Yeah, it's interesting that, the, you know, where the price pressures are, are all areas where there's a lot of government policy involved. Um, you know, so um, like tobacco, uh, fuel, electricity, uh, utilities, private health education. Insurance. We just, uh, we just got our quarterly electricity bill and oh my God, I mean, I talk about getting my pulse racing, my heart nearly stopped when I, when I saw the direct debit come out. I was like, really? <laughs> that it's, was all, it's, it's all those electronic devices you're always fiddling with during the course of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just extraordinary. And I think what's really interesting from a public policy perspective is, and also from a behavioral economics perspective, so that you kind of don't notice the little one and two percents coming off the footwear. You don't, you know, um, uh, you don't, see that um, but you do notice um, the big gas bill the big water bill the big electricity bill and that's the kind of thing that can kind of nudge you into um, maybe constraining your spending a little bit because um, you're kind of worried about you know what's going to um, you know making ends meet by the end of the next quarter um, do you think that that's maybe a factor that's kind of weighing on consumer sentiment Sure. Look, I think you're absolutely right. I think when you get those uh, bills that are quarterly or annual, uh, you know, perhaps you haven't budgeted for them or you've budgeted, but you haven't realised 
price increase is going to be so big and it's cumulative over the quarter. Uh, so you can get, get hit by bill shock, um, undoubtedly. And as you mentioned, a lot of those type of items are, are what we call non-discretionary. So it's fairly hard to shift the dial on the volume of electricity you can consume. You can ask your kids to turn the lights out, but it's actually not really going to shift the dial too much. It's hard to reduce the volume of uh, private health insurance that you uh, consume or buy, if you like. So uh, in a sense, you're taking that price increase and there's not much you can do about it uh, as well. So there's sort of two elements there. Um, look, I think it's really interesting. Uh, the electricity has been obviously a, a great example of where we've had this sort of bill shock. And if you look at the retail sales data, the monthly data, we clearly saw through Q3 last year quite a substantial dip in retail sales. And, and that measure picks up mostly discretionary spending. Uh, and I, I think there's a few reasons for that, but I think one of the key reasons is people got their first really big electricity bill and it was unexpected and they didn't know how big it, increase it was going to be and it really sort of hit the pocket. Um, but actually now, one of the big surprises I actually think in the Q2 CPI release was that electricity and gas prices fell in Q2. Um, now, that's surprising because those prices generally don't move in Q2. Uh, so uh, we know that, you know, you get the one July reset on prices or, or one January in Victoria, but in the other states. So generally, electricity and gas prices only move in Q3 and Q1. Uh, but we've got quite substantial falls uh, in Q2. And what that tells me is consumers were shopping around. They were shopping around for better deals. So they were either calling their electricity and gas suppliers, and Paul's going to jump off the phone and do exactly that this afternoon, uh, <laughs> and, and asking for discounts, or moving suppliers and getting onto better plans. So clearly we're seeing that switching, uh, which I think is quite encouraging. It tells you that uh, consumers uh, did feel the pinch, that they were constrained by it, but they're actually actively trying to do something about it. So um, some data which uh, I saw during the week from APRA, right, which is I think an annual survey of people's uh, private health or uh, life insurance cover, health insurance yeah, cover, health insurance. Sorry, health insurance. Uh, and uh, for me, this is the biggest signal that people are, so, and you know, you talk about this um, sometimes talk about it in kind of abstract terms that you get a decline in uh, living standards or whatever, but this is a real, like private health insurance cover is going backwards. There are less people with private health insurance cover because maybe they can't afford it or um, just all of the other non-discretionary items in their household budget, um, something's got to give. And when you have that option to, um, uh, you know, ditch your uh, monthly uh, health insurance payment, uh, and I certainly know for our family it's pretty expensive. Um, so uh, you know it's one thing that people are doing, and like looking at declines of you know um, five six percent uh, for people in their twenties, right? So these are young people who are uh, you know maybe at the start of a career. Bulletproof. Yeah, yeah, the bulletproof. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't need. They don't feel like that. They they need uh, the life insurance, obviously, but. It's amazing that it is going backwards. So, so you would think that that being bulletproof is a kind of stable, uh, it, mm. you know, doesn't change much from one year to the next. And there's plenty of incentives actually to um, have private health insurance or life insurance um, and remain in the system, right? So actually, if you think about it from a behavioral economics point of view, there's lots of nudges that encourage you to, to get in early and hold your insurance. So I, I agree. I think that trend towards ditching it's actually telling you that consumers are really feeling the pinch. One of the slightly encouraging uh, elements in the CPI data over the last few quarters, though, is actually that we are seeing um, somewhat lower price rises in those 
administered or non-discretionary items. Um, so prices are still going up more than the overall CPI. I'm not suggesting that, and mm. I'm, I'm not suggesting, you know, they're still hurting the household budget. But actually, um, we saw education prices, for example, uh, they went up 2.6% in Q1. They used to go up 5% a year. Um, and in fact, that 2.6 was the lowest that we'd seen in two decades. Uh, we also saw that um, private, private, years, right. private health insurance, uh, which went up in the Q2 data. Again, uh, that was the lowest uh, annual reset since uh, 2012, I think. Uh, so that's quite significant. Um, and actually, at ANZ, one of the things we do is we slice the CPI and we look at administered prices. Uh, and that uh, had the slowest rate of inflation since the middle of 08. Uh, in the last data. So still running above inflation, still hurting households, but it does look like, you know, perhaps um, those sort of, we're getting less of an impost each year, uh, if you like. So somewhat encouraging. Yeah, I agree. It's good news. But the thing that I think a lot of people will be sitting there and shaking their heads about a little bit will be that you've got to consider the base effect that it's come off. And obviously, they've gone up astronomically over the past decade. And so a small increase off a huge amount that you pay uh, it still hurts and it's still you know, effectively equivalent to like a substantial increase to what you would have seen back in the past. So whilst it is slowing, I think that uh, we're clearly seeing that because of the constrained consumer, because of weak wage growth and income growth, we're starting to see these pressures now kind of filtering out. So I'm, I'm pleased that there's signs that people are going and starting to shop around. But the health insurance one was a big one for me, just to go and see that. That's something that I think it can only be put down to the fact that prices have now reached the point where people are willing to go and forego their health and being covered to go and save a bit of money. It's uh, certainly a really um, extraordinary question. What is the bull case for inflation so what like what is the where do you see where can we look to see right actually there are inflationary pressures building um i think you know from your analysis you were saying this is just going to be a slow process but where are they yeah i mean look it's going to be a slow burn uh so i think uh you know incredibly sort of slow uplift in inflation and i think the risks are still tilted to the downside so the way i think about inflation i sort of um put it into four buckets, if you like. So I look at uh, tradable inflation or retail prices. As I said, I've got no retail price inflation in my numbers. I've still got negative numbers out in 2020. Uh, and then I look at administered prices. So again, they're still rising faster than inflation, but starting to decelerate. Uh, so you're not going to see it there. And then we look at housing. Uh, so there's two bits of housing that sit inside the CPI. One is rents. And one is what's called new dwelling purchase prices, which is a kind of weird term in a sense, but that's the cost of building a new home, excluding the land. Uh, so the actual construction mm. costs. And, and they're really important and often under-analyzed and under-talked about, I think. They're the biggest component. They're the biggest component. So uh, they, uh, the, the construction cost elements, 7.8% of the index alone, and rents is 7.2% of the index. Now, to put that into perspective, the next largest line item is 4% of the index. Right? So those two indexes together are almost as big as food. Uh, so they're really important, and there's some quite interesting dynamics going on. So in the construction costs, actually, they've remained quite elevated, despite the fact that we've got building approvals rolling over and the residential construction cycle peaking. Um, now, I'm actually doing a bit of work on that at the moment, so because uh, I think it's quite important. Um, and I, I think what's happening is, even though we're seeing a rolling over in building approvals, 
the backlog of work, particularly along the eastern seaboard, is enough to keep the level of residential construction quite strong. And also we know that um, apartments compete a little bit with non-resi and with infrastructure around some of the skills um, and um, inputs. Uh, so I think that this sort of infrastructure boom that we've had and the pickup in non-resi construction is probably overlaying a little bit of cost pressure there. So that's interesting, but that's sort of being offset by rents. Uh, so rents uh, have been incredibly weak in WA, incredibly weak in Queensland, but had until recently held up quite well in Melbourne and Sydney. Now that's turned around. Uh, so the rate of rental increase uh, halved in Melbourne and Sydney in the last um, data point. And actually rents overall were flat in the quarter, which is the first time for many, many years that we've had a flat uh, outcome. So I think those two are offsetting themselves, but got some interesting dynamics coming. And then uh, effectively what's left is this domestic market services inflation and, as I said, really tied to wages or more precisely unit labour costs. And what concerns me, I guess, when I look forward is that we have had some pickup in wages and it doesn't look like even those parts of the economy that don't compete with offshore firms are actually able to pass through prices. And I think it comes down to what we've been talking about, and that is that consumer budgets are really pinched, right? Mm. Um, so... You, you, you know, I don't know, the cost of dry cleaning your shirts goes up and you stop dry cleaning your shirts. I mean, I think if you're getting rid of your private health insurance, you, you're cutting back on your hairdresser or on the vet or whatever ever else it is that you're spending your money on. So I find it pretty hard to put a case where we're going to have upside surprise to inflation. And of course, all of that in turn then puts pressure on those businesses when you get that those discretionary, those decisions by consumers not to go ahead with the vet or to go to a cheaper hairdresser or whatever. So it's not just the inflation number that's affected, it's the businesses too. Absolutely. Uh, and remember, a lot of those tend to be smaller businesses and small businesses, the engine room of employment growth mm. in Australia. I've, I've been paying very close attention to a lot of the uh, Australian PMI data that's come out recently, and it's showing that there is a clear uh, squeeze being felt because input costs for businesses have been rising substantially faster than uh, than for what you'd be actually going to pass on to the uh, to the end consumer. So that indicates that there's quite severe margin pressures that are now impacting. Now, how long that can go and remain in place is is the big question because, as Joe rightly pointed out, it's a huge engine room of, of employment growth. Now, if they start to go and say, well, our costs are becoming so high, we're going to have to go and either not hire new staff or start laying off staff, then I think that obviously will create some problems because we've got a lot of budget forecasts, uh, a lot of uh, no, uh, economic forecasts from the RBA that are premised on having reasonably strong uh, employment growth and a pick up in wages to go and you know, achieve their policy objectives. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's certainly fascinating. Uh, and I just uh, wonder, like one of, certainly one of the, um, the areas that's been most affected by that, and we talk about, you know, uh, these businesses that are affected. So the retail sector being, I think, the biggest employer uh, after health, is it? Uh, biggest employment sector after health? Yeah, so then our construction is in third spot. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, this is the area where, um, and we'll talk about Amazon, but, uh, you know, Amazon launched at the end of last year and there was all this talk about, oh, it was underwhelming and, you know, and wasn't it disappointing and all that kind of stuff. But slowly, steadily, they have been increasing the number of products that they're selling and they're also dropping their prices. Um, and they are dropping them very aggressively in some categories. So, and this is the issue then that retailers have, which is, okay, well, my input costs are going up um, and, um, you know, we want to be able to give the staff some kind of pay rise but we um like in order for us to, to try and do that one of the things that we used to be able to do was increase prices a little bit 
but you can't do that now. And of course, for you know, many small businesses and including in the retail sector, the increase in the minimum wage this year again was you know uh, higher than expected and followed last year's higher than expected, and, and that's going to feed through either directly or through those uh, minimum wage plus contracts uh, to you know thirty or forty percent of the labour force. So that's a, a wage increase you you must put it legally required to put in place, but as you said, not necessarily able to pass on. If I can make one suggestion, I do think um, at a policy level, uh, governments need to start looking at where they can, uh, tr- what they can do to try and um, relieve some of that pressure, I think, on household budgets. So in the utilities area, um, you know, encouraging people to shop around, whether that is or, you know, um, or, you know, something maybe more dramatic uh, in, um, in in terms of price control. Um, uh, I think there's, you know, it's certainly an interesting conversation to be had. Uh, oh, look, I think, area. I mean, we are seeing a few policies. So the 1 July resets for electricity and gas. Uh, this time last year, we thought there'd be 10% last year and another 5 or 6% this year, but actually they fell in Queensland and were flat in New South Wales and South Australia. Uh, so that's quite encouraging. Um, and also, of course, income tax cuts, um, which perhaps didn't sound that big, but actually when you put them into context are not insignificant for household budgets uh, and the minimum wage increase. So where does it leave us all on um, the outlook for interest rates, which is, you know, where this all where this all goes, right? So 2.1%, but a long way off um, the RBA being able to do anything. Oh, that. absolutely. I mean, as I said, this uh, speech by Governor Lowe in February clearly outlined a framework around uh, making clear progress towards 2.5%. So on the core measure, we're at 1.9 now. Um, I've got two at the end of this year and 2.1 at the end of next year and 2.2 at the end of the following year. So incredibly slow uh, progress there. And and I think after the Q2, re- possibly a little bit of downside risk uh, emerging. Uh, so look, we, we do think the RBA uh, will um, start to take away some of the monetary stimulus. We've got two rate hikes uh, in the second half of next year. Maybe for the benefit of listeners, um, the, I know this will be a very familiar territory to a lot of people, but then maybe not to, to others. Um, maybe you can both talk through um, the difference between headline and underlying inflation or core inflation, because they're two different things. Um, so maybe you can just explain that for, for people who maybe don't follow this as closely as we do. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, we live it and breathe it and assume everyone knows what we're talking about. But look, uh, what we call headline inflation or the consumer price index, that measures um, effectively the increase in price of everything a household buys. Uh, Now, what uh, underlying inflation does is it takes out of that calculation, and there's a few ways that we can measure underlying inflation. So in a sense, it's a little bit of a fluffy term, but broadly, it takes out the parts of that CPI um, that have had excessive price changes that aren't likely to be repeated um, or that policy wouldn't want to respond to. So for example, if you get a very significant increase in uh, petrol prices, uh, from a policy perspective, uh, you know, the RBA can't control uh, petrol prices. It's set by offshore oil prices and the currency. Uh, you wouldn't want to hike rates uh, because petrol prices have gone up in one quarter. Of course, which they, which they did in the uh, in the June quarter. They, uh, the, however, half the headline increase during the quarter was entirely from fuel. So that gives you an indication. So that's the that's basically what the uh, the job of the underlying or the core inflation measures are is to strip out those items that are giving you like a, a skewed and uh, and not exactly correct 
picture of what's going on with price pressures. So it just allows them to go in and see what the actual underlying trends are in inflation and go and dictate policy off that rather than uh, just you know, volatile movements. Yeah, so when they, when they say they target a headline rate of about 2.5%, um, it's actually the underlying measures that they look at more closely uh, in order to determine whether there really is um, uh, proper price rises um, being seen. That's exactly right. So if you look at the um, Reserve Bank of Australia's actual inflation target, it talks about uh, targeting a, a CPI or a headline inflation rate of between 2 and 3% on average over time. Uh, now, that's a pretty broad statement and, you know, what is over time. Uh, but I, I guess what underlying inflation does, over time you would expect underlying and core inflation to actually be be broadly similar. So uh, from a quarter to quarter or a year to year basis, core inflation allows them to understand uh, those broader inflation trends outside of, say, for example, a uh, the increase in tobacco prices that we get twice a year, which is a result of an excise tax, not really reflecting supply and demand in the economy, if you like. So core inflation should reflect uh, supply and demand, whether your economy is running above or below potential, effectively. Um, the other point I'd make, which um, a lot of people don't know, is the headline CPI rate is not seasonally adjusted and effectively never revised, or incredibly rarely. Uh, the core measure is seasonally adjusted um, and can be revised quarter to quarter. Yeah, I'll, I'll, Mike. Just uh, ask you very quickly. I noticed that uh, the, the big thing I saw in the uh, in the underlying figures that came out was that the core measures are actually above the uh, the, the bottom of the two percent target for a period of time. There, there was there obviously has been some upward revisions to prior data, so it was actually sitting within the, within the RBA band for a period of time. Then, lo and behold, in the June quarter, boom, back down to one point nine percent. So it's back below again. So I found that. A, remarkable that the uh, the revisions, obviously, like, you no, know, so all the discussion was about being still being below for, you know, X number of years, and all of a sudden it was above, but then now it's back below again. And like just the, the policy headaches that must go and create, trying to go and sort of determine, you know, is this the right policy setting? It must be difficult for uh, for the RBA to go and sort of gauge if you're having these big changes that are being revised, you know, talking about things that happened like a year ago, which we saw in the, uh, the latest release. Look, it's a challenge for us as well. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, if you look at the um, average of the trimmed mean and the weighted median, so that's generally what we call core inflation, uh, you know, before the CPI release, that was at 1.9% year-ended for Q1. Uh, then we got 1.9% year-ended for Q2, but Q1 got revised to 2 So do we say that it decelerated um, <laughs> and that it's weaker than our expectations, or do we kind of go, well, not really? Uh, but look, that's one of the reasons why when you look at the RBA's forecast, they always forecast to the nearest quarter point. So if you look at the mm. forecast table in the Statement on Monetary Policy, it's always to the quarter point. And even when they have the actuals, uh, so we get the SOMP next week, uh, they will have the June quarter actuals in it. They put in a actual for the headline CPI, so it will, it will print 2.2. Uh, but for the core measure, even for the actual, they always have it rounded to the quarter point. Now, partly that's because there's a variety of ways to measure core, uh, but partly I think it helps um, to clarify that policy debate. Will, will the RBA have a 2.5% midpoint for uh, underlying inflation in the next week's SOMP? No, I don't think so. Neither do I. 
So when do you think there might be, when do you see that, like, what's your direction on rates at this point? Like, do, do you have a call yep. for, yeah? So we've got two RBA rate hikes at the um, second half of next year. Um, now, we don't think that core inflation will be at two and a half at that point, but we, you know, central banks are proactive. And there's other bits going on in the economy as well that are important to think about and, and to consider. So, and of course, the real cash rate or inflation adjusted cash rate in Australia is negative. And as inflation slowly picks up, it becomes more negative. Uh, and what do we know about negative real cash rates? Well, it, it transpires in, um, you know, leverage growth effectively. And one of the things we're worried about, of course, is the amount of leverage in the household sector in Australia. So, we think by the middle of next year or towards the, the middle towards the end of next year, there'll be sufficient evidence that there is enough momentum in inflation to be confident that you're moving to two and a half, not to one and a half. Uh, and then we think there'll be two rate hikes that will bring the cash, real cash rate back to zero. Um, and then I think probably another fairly prolonged period of stability until inflation really does start to accelerate towards two and a half. Which leads us nicely onto housing, which is what we're going to talk about next. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week is Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. So, housing. Uh, I was talking to somebody in, um, uh, who's involved in state politics uh, today, uh, and he actually put something, uh, I think, uh, very interestingly to me. You know, the policy challenge for the state government is to do something about housing affordability without doing anything terrible to prices. And it goes back to some of this wage inflation question, you know, um, you know, how do houses, so the market's coming back to people at the moment, and but things have become, they were, they were at such a high level that housing is still, it's still extremely expensive to buy a house or to get onto the property market in, in Sydney, right? Oh, absolutely. So, so, so there could be, you know, there's room for a 10% decline in house prices or maybe more. Um, but maybe, Dave, um, we can talk about what we're seeing because there are some signs that some of these price falls are accelerating it a little bit. They are based off the core logic data that was released for June. Oh, sorry, July. Uh, we saw that, uh, I don't know, 0.6% decline in the month. That's one of the largest in the last five or six years. Uh, quarterly decline was also one of the largest since the early uh, 2010s. Uh, annual rate now 1.6% decline. Obviously, you know, we've seen uh, prices falling in the mining capitals like Darwin and Perth, but you know, obviously more recently we've seen Sydney is definitely uh, in accelerating with price declines. Melbourne is definitely even faster than Sydney, uh, declining now. And we're seeing it because Melbourne was the one that was holding up an end, wasn't it? For um, it was holding it, up at the one. back end of last year, so yeah. it's it's running about four or five months behind Sydney in its cycle. Yeah, I remember having a discussion, a quite uh, intense discussion with someone on Twitter when I went and made the uh, an, uh, assertion that um, when Melbourne started to go and cool, I said it's looking a lot like Sydney, and that was just when Sydney prices started to come off. And lo and behold, they have now turned negative on an annualised basis too. So it uh, it is. Obviously, something that's taking a lot of people's attention, uh, I can tell by the, uh, the amount of traffic that's coming to our website uh, in relation to the property stories at the moment, there is a lot of people who are interested with what's going on. Uh, just one, one uh, stat that I saw yesterday. So Sydney's median house price based off CoreLogic's data, so this houses, not apartments, is now under a million bucks for the first time since late 2016. From the cyclical peak, the median price has dropped by over $80,000. So this is unrealized gains and unrealized losses, but this is something that people are going to be sitting there and when they consider like how wealthy they feel, uh, $80,000 is not a, a small amount of money. It's a large amount of money. It's more than a lot of households earn in an entire year. So well, if, you're, if, you're, if you have uh, an investment property that is going to fund your retirement, 
for example, mm -hmm. uh, a decline in that price if you're going to liquidate, if you're going to sell it and use it to fund your retirement. If there's 80 grand gone, that is a very meaningful change in what your retirement looks like. Correct. Yeah. It's, uh, and so obviously, you know, and starting to broaden out, we saw prices fall in regional centers as well across a, a weighted average. So obviously this is not reflective of like markets within markets. So it, it is something that looks like, you know, that what started off with, with Sydney and then it's gone to Melbourne is now starting to go and move to those non-mining capitals as well. So it's something that definitely needs to be watched. You know, we're talking about, you know, Brisbane has been holding up, Adelaide prices have been holding up. Obviously Hobart has been uh, the one standout performer. But to say that they'll be able to go and continue bucking the trend uh, based on what's uh, you know, happening in Sydney and Melbourne, I think it's a little bit uh, you know, naive because there's so much of wealth concentrated in Sydney and Melbourne. When you start seeing declines there, I'm certain it's going to have spillover effects to the broader economy. What do you make of it, Joe? Oh, look, I, I completely agree that we are uh, seeing uh, an acceleration in the slowdown. Uh, we're seeing a broadening in the slowdown. Um, and one of the interesting things that we look at is that uh, the lower end of the market is actually held up better than the higher end of the market. Um, so... And, and that really reflects the fact that uh, we've seen first home buyers come back into the market. Uh, so, uh, and, and that's been a combination of two things. Uh, first of all, prices have fallen a little bit. And, you know, first home buyers, there's that latent demand. Plenty of first home buyers that are living at home, been saving money, haven't been able to afford to get in the market. But actually what the last year tells us is that you don't have to move prices too much uh, for that latent demand to come back in and, um, and support uh, the demand at that lower end of the market. And of course, in Victoria and New South Wales, we also had stamp duty relief, uh, which has also helped at the margin as well to bring that marginal first home buyer to the market. Um, but actually now, even the lower end of the market is decelerating. So in Sydney, that bottom 25% of the market is actually now also got price falls. Uh, and in Melbourne, it's still positive, but decelerating uh, fairly rapidly. So it, it does seem pretty uh, broadly based. And look, it's absolutely critical. As you said, everyone wants to talk about it, uh, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. But um, you know, for most households, it's the biggest asset they own. Um, but also it's it's that basic human right around shelter. Um, I, I think the housing affordability debate that you sort of started off with is, you know, look, it's clearly very complicated. Uh, but one thing I do um, like to point out is that we tend to talk about housing affordability around um, buying and owning a home. But actually, housing affordability is around having a home to live in. Uh, so that actually includes the rental market. Mm. Um, and as I said, rents were flat uh, in, in Q2 for the first time in a long time and have gone up a lot, have gone up, but have gone up a lot less than, than houses. So I, I think in Australia, we've got this uh, focus or, you know, the dream around owning your own home. But actually, if you look at international experience, particularly in big cities, there's plenty of renters. I, I think housing affordability is definitely going to improve, particularly for the, uh, the apartment space in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. There was a record amount of dwellings that were being built in New South Wales and Victoria in the March quarter of this year. We've got prices that are falling, so you've got a combination of things that are being built and are likely to be completed at a time when prices are falling. Um, to say that there's going to be price gains in such an environment, is uh, it ain't going to happen. So uh, for those people looking to go and get on the, uh, the property market and for uh, who are willing to go and live in an apartment, then I think that the outlook is, uh, is looking certainly a lot better than what it was, say, you know, a couple of years ago when you're looking at price gains per annum of like, you know, 10, 15%. I don't disagree. Can I jump in? I sure. don't disagree with that. But one of the really interesting things, I think, in the housing market, and uh, maybe I'm just the optimist always and, you know, like to try and find the story that 
it sounds good, but um, <laughs> is Brisbane. Uh, so, you know, this time last year, uh, we at ANZ and pretty much everyone else was talking about Brisbane is the market we are most concerned about, uh, an enormous amount of supply coming on stream. Uh, so the building cumulative number of building approvals in Brisbane since 2011 as a percentage of the housing stock in 2011 was over 50%. So that's the kind of supply increase you're getting in the Brisbane market. Prices in Brisbane are rising. And in fact, prices in Brisbane for apartments are rising faster than they are for houses. Um, now, there's lots of things going on, but one of the really interesting things is that we've seen this uh, increase in interstate migration, mm. um, largely from New South Wales into uh, into Queensland and supporting that population growth in Brisbane and, and therefore, you know, soaking up that amount of supply coming on stream. Um, and that I think that's encouraging in the sense it tells you that market dynamics kind of work. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I don't disagree uh, with, with your view around apartments, but I do find the Brisbane example quite interesting that this time last year, it looked like it was absolutely dreadful. And here we are sitting today. And in fact, on, on our house price numbers, I think it's the market we're most positive about. Mm. Uh, you know, I thought that interstate migration thing, when I first saw reports about it, you know, that people were leaving Sydney because houses were too Economic migration. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is a millennial beat up, you know. Um, but the more data we see, it is real. There are, people are priced out of living in Sydney. And it's it's an extraordinary, you know, because the thing about Sydney is because it's such a center for all sorts of, um, you know, it's a, you know, financial um, services hub. Um, uh, it is, you know, the global city uh, within Australia. So there's a lot of pulling power in that. And it's also a beautiful place to live. Um, and, you know, people complain about the infrastructure and all that kind of stuff, but generally things work um, in Sydney, you know. Um, well, apart from if you're on George Street, uh, any time. Or, or trains maybe. on a Sunday. Yeah, trains <laughs> on a Sunday, that's right. Um, so, um, so there's a lot of pull, pulling power there. And so for me, I think that says an awful lot when you start to see those um, outflows um, of people from the state. There's one really interesting story. I may have told this on the podcast a couple of months ago, but I'm going to tell it again. There is apparently a flight that leaves Sydney to go to Launceston on Friday evening. Uh, and everybody gets together uh, in the airport and they all have a whole bunch of beer together. Um, and they go down and they, you know, tuck into a few cold ones on the way down and maybe kick on somewhere else when they get to Launceston. And it's all Launceston residents who are Sydney-based professionals um, who have sold their house in Sydney uh, and they're now living mortgage-free in Launceston um, and they're having a great time. And apparently this is a complete phenomenon, this flight. It's like everybody's so happy. They're like getting out of Sydney. See you later. I, I, um, can, I can tell you that this, there is... Like for me personally, there's plans in the mix to go and do something similar like that. And I would place up in, in Queensland, the Gold Coast. When are you going to tell me? I'm just kidding. No, no. We're, 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 <laughs> you know, this, this is something that we've been discussing for a while, but no, yeah. nothing's happened yet. And nothing probably will happen for quite a while. But I think there's, there's definitely grounds. I know plenty of people who go and live, uh, I know Byron, Gold Coast, Brisbane. And what they do is they will go and spend the weekend or might they might fly up on a Thursday night, spend like a long weekend up there with their family. And then what they do is they'll come back down to, uh, to Sydney to go and work and they rent a place. And because rental, rental rates, yes, they're expensive, but they haven't really been going anywhere recently and, and getting softer, that it just makes economic sense to them. The cost of, of renting and owning a place elsewhere, it just makes sense for a lot of people. And I presume that there's going to be more of this as, as time goes on as well, because, you know, from a lifestyle perspective, it's sometimes nice to be able to go and get out of the, uh, the big smoke and go to a nicer place and spend time with your family in a better environment. 
And of course, technology is making that easier. Yeah. It's easier to work remotely. Uh, companies, big and small, have become more flexible, more open-minded about how and where you work. Um, and actually, uh, one of the other things that's changed in Brisbane is actually employment growth. There's been more jobs created in Queensland in the last year than in Victoria. Wow. Uh, so place to be, so huh? those economic migrants, yeah. they can now get a job, you know, buy a house, work remotely, uh, you know. Yeah. I, I, I remember having a discussion. Uh, I've got a few people laughing about what, how I described uh, Brisbane. But I was up there uh, not too long ago and I was genuinely impressed with how that city's evolved as a place. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot, uh, lot more things to go and do, a lot more visually appealing around the CBD area and stuff now. And I can see why people want to go up there because – from a Sydney sider's perspective, when you go up, and I remember having to look at some of the you know, the property boards and things like that to see what the costs were, and you can go and buy these grandiose four or five bedroom Queenslanders on a beautiful block of land and things like that, and it's seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. And to some people, that's going that sounds like oh, that's still a lot of money for a Sydney sider. Seven hundred fifty thousand dollars is cheap. Extremely cheap. Yeah. So it's, it takes uh, you 15 minutes to drive to work in Brisbane. Exactly right. So I can I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can completely <laughs> see why people are flocking to the Queensland state. Uh, okay, uh, we'll no doubt be back to the housing uh, at some point. Um, I can't believe the time, but I want to talk for a little while um, about education uh, uh, in economics. Um, there was a speech by Jackie Dwyer, who is head of information at the RBA, and she gave this speech in May, and we haven't covered it on the podcast, but I've been, uh, I think now's a good time to, to get into it. Um, let me just quote from, uh, from what she said. She said, um, economics is relevant to us all. Now I'm obviously preaching to the choir here. Um, Every day our lives are affected by by economic decisions, ones we make personally and ones that are made by others. Economics is about how individuals and societies choose to allocate their limited resources to meet their needs and wants. It's about how we respond to incentives, make trade-offs, weigh up costs and benefits, and how we decide what is efficient and what is fair. Economics contains some powerful concepts and useful framework. It can help us better understand the choices involved in many personal decisions we make and better understand the economic conditions and policies that affect our lives. Right Now, uh, a couple of months ago, I had lunch with a, a quite a senior um, executive. And one of the things that came up, we were talking about the company tax cuts, and one of the things that came up was he was just bemoaning this thing of how um, he sees in society uh, people being increasingly unable to follow basic economic logic. And it's a question about financial and economic literacy, I suppose. Um, but this speech came out after that, and so it was kind of on my mind. And when you look at the trends in uh, economics education, um, it has got, it declined very significantly uh, in terms of high school enrollments, uh, and of course uh, in university enrollments too. Uh, and interestingly, associated with that, and so there's been a rise of business studies and commerce, uh, which is an important sort of it's you know economics cousin or you know um, the competing discipline. Um, but uh, it's I've lost my train of thought now. Um, the other thing that's that's been very clear in that data is where there used to be roughly about a 50-50 gender split in um, enrollments in high school and in uh, economics, that is now two to one uh, in favor of the guys. Um, so there are twice as many men studying of those economic students that are left, um, there are twice as many of them are guys, uh, and they tend typically to be also um, quite well educated. I think 55% uh, or so are from higher socioeconomic 
groups. Uh, so fascinating. Um, but obviously, um, Joe, I know in the last couple of years, um, there's the Women in Economics Network has started up and it's been doing, um, I thought it was really interesting to see it get off the ground. A great bunch of people involved. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, what's happening in, uh, in that space? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I think uh, as a profession, not just in Australia, but globally, uh, there is this recognition that uh, of those sort of trends, both around overall enrolments and economics uh, declining, but, but particularly participation, not just of women, actually, but... Um, but also uh, around sort of ethnicity and, and that type of thing. So, uh, and and I guess as a group of professionals that, as you just defined, look at how we make decisions, is it fair, is it equitable, uh, to not have diversity of thought in a profession like that, I think it's really worrying. Um, uh, so we know that in all areas of of life, uh, of business, that diversity of thought is is a good thing. Uh, but I think, you know, when you're talking about policies that drive the economy, the decisions people are making, diversity of thought is actually really critical. So uh, I think it is really concerning. Um, Women in Economics Network obviously uh, sits within the Economic Society of Australia, uh, but really designed at trying to uh, promote female participation in economics at every level and across every um, spectrum. Uh, you know, there's no sort of one economist role. You know, there's lots of areas where you can be an economist or lots of jobs that you can do, actually, uh, if you have an economic sort of background. And I personally think that's one of the challenges. I think there's this sense that if you do an economics degree, you must be an economist or have a job with a economist in your title, whereas if you do a commerce degree, you can kind of be anything that you want. And of course, that's not true at all. Uh, there's plenty of people out there that that don't have economists in their titles that, that are economically trained. And, and actually, it's it's about critical thought, economics, and it's about the decisions that we make in our lives. So it's actually, uh, you know, a really great broad degree to be doing. Um, so, look, I mean, I, I've been involved. I recently did a policy in the pub night for Women in Economics Network, and it was great to see some guys there as well because, you know, I think that promoting diversity is not just about uh, talking to the to women, it's actually talking agree. to yeah. the profession and to the business uh, world as a whole. Um, I'm also doing, I, I have two girls, so I'm really passionately interested in it. Um, uh, I'm also doing a couple of other things. Uh, so, for example, you know, in year 10, most kids go out and do a, a week of work experience. Um, but actually, what, what I'm doing for one of my daughter's schools is um, uh, hosting her economics teacher uh, for a period of time uh, so that her teacher will have a broader understanding of what a market economist or a bank economist does in their day-to-day -day world. And, and my hope is that she'll be able to reach hundreds, if not thousands of girls, rather than just one if I have a work a year 10 yeah. work experience tuning in. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And um, on my to-do list is my children go to different schools. So on my to-do list is to talk to the other school and go, hey, why don't you do the same? So, you know, I, th I think there's lots that, that can be done. And I think, uh, you know, I often hear there are not very many female economists in the Australian market. Um, there's not as many as, as there are men, but there's some really talented uh, women working in this industry. And um, I think that one of the great things from Women in Economics Network is highlighting those women and, and making them accessible and visible to, to younger uh, women. Now, generally, that they would be in the workforce, but, I mean, we can broaden that out. And one thing that always sticks with me, and I, I get asked to talk about this, you know, a, a lot, which is great, um, but one of the things that sticks with me is it's hard to be what you can't see. It's not, it's not impossible, but it's hard, right? Uh, so I actually think that having uh, the, the great women that we have that work in economics, and I can think of, you know, a handful right off the top of my head, and in fact, at ANZ, uh, three of our four senior economists 
that work on the Australian team are female, so that's fantastic. Um, but I think, you know, organisations like Women in Economics Network that make those women visible and accessible and uh, is actually really critical. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really um, fascinating area. Do you think uh, there is a bias problem, a gender bias problem in the, in the financial industry? I would. I mean, let's take it as a given that the problem there is. Yes, right. In some like the ways. statistics tell you yes. that's a fact. Uh, but the question is, is why? Um, so you know, one of the things that I find interesting is uh, not if you look at economics, but if you look at sort of graduates more broadly. And I, I guess one of the other things I'd say when we're talking about what you go and study at university is that, is that's changing, right? You know, I mean, in the past, to be a bank economist, you had to have an economics degree. Now, in, certainly in some organisations, you could have an engineering degree or a data scientist degree or whatever it is. Mm. So, so that's becoming more flexible. Um, uh, but, you know, one of the interesting things is you look at the number of females graduating from university. Uh, it's about 50-50 broadly with, with guys. Um, and we're getting women into the workforce, uh, less in financial services and perhaps has a reputation for not being very female friendly. But we don't retain women. Uh, and that's not just true in banks, that's true in lots of industries, actually. So if you look at, um, you know, we don't retain women through those years when they're having children and their children are young. Uh, and we don't bring them back into the workforce very well. Um, and we don't have enough flexibility for women to believe that they can continue to accelerate their career while they're dealing with the demand, you know, high demands of a, of a young family. In fact, the Hilda report out this week, I mean, there's lots of interesting facts in there and there's been a lot around the amount of housework or lack thereof that men do. But um, one of the interesting things I thought was looking at uh, the amount of time spent on care and to some extent housework uh, between um, family units, um, de facto or married, um, that have children and don't have children. Like, it's almost like a read of how much time did your children actually take? And for a couple with children, the number of hours per week they spend on care between not having kids and having kids is 30 hours a week, right? It's enormous. And generally, the bulk of that with young children sort of falls to women. Um, so, you know, so we need to change that on the home front, but we need to retain women. And also costs of childcare as well are just completely insane. Um, and even... Uh, people who are returning to work where they've got a where they make a very good living, um, you know, they've got a, they're getting a decent salary, etc. The costs are just eye watering. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a massive disincentive um, to going back to work, and you know, um, because what are you clearing at the end of the day? You know, once you've paid for your childcare costs and also done the drop-off and factoring in the time and extra, uh, all of that that it takes. And that to you have to pick up at 6pm sharp. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's um, it's such an, such an interesting area. And I really do think, like particularly in Sydney, there's been a big policy failure there, I think, uh, in terms of um, getting good, solid access to childcare for, um, for families. Yep. Um, so and flexible childcare. You know, we talk about flexibility in the workplace, but flexible childcare that actually works for you. So... You know, in financial markets, you know, I need to be at my desk by 7. And when my children were young, I was working in FX, I needed to be at my desk at 5 a.m. Mm. There's no childcare that opens at 4.30. Yeah. Um, you probably don't want it to. But, you know, we need flexibility as, as, the, as people's jobs become, you know, 9 to 5 doesn't really exist, I don't think, anymore. Or maybe it does for some. But, you know, people are working differently and, and childcare needs to be more flexible around that. I, I'm... Very much for uh, smallish governments, but the one area that I think there's definitely room for the government to go and 
partake in is the uh, is the childcare area because as everyone has been pointing out here that there's a lack of flexibility the costs are enormous uh to go and increase female participation and male participation to a certain degree one of the best things that the government could do is go and open centers of their own i think if the, if the private sector is not willing to go and do it then i think that there's something that the government could particularly go and look at doing because i think to me a lot of uh, no, i think holding people back is just the cost of going putting a child the economics behind it is essentially do i go and do my job for free and just retain my skills and build my skills or do i just stay at home and look after my children and that's a, a very very poor decision i think you've got to have to go and weigh up and I, I think actually you raise a really a good point as well is that um, perhaps there's role for uh, policies that support women to maintain their skills and training while they either economically or for other reasons choose to have a period of time at home. Um, so I, I had a few years at home with, with my children and I, and I didn't do anything for my career during that period. And I, when I talk to, to younger women now, I, I always say that was a mistake. In retrospect, that was a mistake. So whether there's ways of um, assisting women to keep up their skills or keep up their networking, and, and of course Women in Economics Network is a great way to do that. Keep up keep up your networking, be there and, and those sort of things. So I think that's really important. And I think one of the problems is that for economic reasons, women have that time out of the workforce and, and then they, you know, they lose confidence. They're perhaps not up as up with the technology skill. Technology is moving so quickly. Uh, so those are all issues. And one thing I have seen offshore, and I think there's a couple examples in Australia, but not many, are big corporates that now have specific policies about bringing talented and skilled women back into the workforce. So almost like a graduate sort of internship, um, we're seeing that. And you see that actually with US uh, firms, actually. So, you know, because there's a whole pool of incredibly talented uh, women out there across a wide range of industries. Um, so, I, you know, I think perhaps more of those sort of policies could be really beneficial. And there's also lots of research that shows a better um, gender split in your workforce and in, in your teams leads to better business outcomes, better business performance, more profitability, all of that kind of stuff. So um, so uh, it's, it's important... Uh, um, you know, for, you know, even if you were just to start at that, like business outcomes, you'll have a better business if you've got a, a, a more diverse um, workforce. Okay, uh, great conversation. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been fantastic. Dave, you're off on holiday. I am. I'll be somewhere in Europe. I don't know where I'll be after a particular point in uh, in early August, so uh, I'm sure I'll keep uh, people updated via Twitter and the like. But I'm looking forward to going and completely uh, you know, shutting down my brain and, uh, and allowing myself some time to breathe and smell the roses, per se. Well earned. Uh, I think we've got GDP at, uh, in the time that you're uh, you're away. No, you'll get you'll get the uh, old wage price index, but I'll be back for GDP. <laughs> okay, looking forward to it. <laughs> we'll send you our report on the wage price index. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, um, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is on iTunes under Devils and Details, or on your preferred podcasting platform of choice. We're all on Twitter individually: Joanne Masters, David Scott, and myself, Paul Colgan. We'll catch you next time.